Hi, welcome to this BJSM podcast and I'm excited to have three experts on imaging and it's a very hot topic right now. Lots of changes in the field of imaging as we highlight in the December BJSM issue and I'm going to be in by introducing John Orchard, the BJSM editorial board member. John, you're a sports physician in Sydney and you've had a lot of interest in imaging. Just tell the listener a bit about your background on this specific topic. Although I'm uh, got other parts to my work that I do research and clinical work. My teamwork, it's uh, been an exciting thing that we've had an MRI installed at the stadium, so that's uh, um, meant that I've had more of an interest in the topic recently. Great, look forward to hearing about that. And going to North America, we have Bruce Forster, who is the Olympic um, radiologist, among other things. Um, Bruce, welcome to BJSM Podcast. Thanks very much, Graham. Bruce, as the Olympic radiologist, we're looking forward to hearing your input on current changes such as office ultrasound and uh, sideline use of imaging. Do you want to just introduce what you see is happening in the in the world of sports medicine imaging at, at the big picture level? Certainly, uh, Grim. Um, thinking of, of ultrasound modality first, you know the smaller sizes of the units has made a big uh, impact on on their um, their portability. So uh, the, uh, the laptop style uh, ultrasound units are are used pretty extensively, I think, uh, as we speak uh, for various uh, you know uh, office type uh, examinations as well as uh, to some extent, I think uh, field of play imaging. The exact extent is is not known. Um, perhaps uh, even more provocative uh, is the development of handheld, handheld ultrasound units, the size of a maybe bulky uh, 1990s cell phone, uh, and they uh, they are not quite ready for prime time yet uh, for use for musculoskeletal applications. Uh, vendors do not recommend them, but um, I think we all appreciate the, uh, the the rapid technologic advances in imaging and. It's undoubtedly the case that uh, soon uh, these handheld units will be uh, used for musculoskeletal applications, so that is going to uh, make uh, the portability even more um, of a factor. Dave, uh, Dave Hancock, working with the New York Knicks, uh, you've used ultrasound on the road. Just give us a little preview of what you've seen different now compared to four or five years ago in use of ultrasound on the road. Um, I used to work in the Premiership, Karim, and uh, when the first ultrasound, portable ultrasounds came out, we had a sonosite when I was at Leeds United, and the screen and uh, the types of head that you could use were very limited. But now, um, as uh, Bruce has quite rightly said, with the portable um, laptops and the small handheld devices, it's a lot more uh, powerful machines that are being available to us, and we tend to use it a lot more on the road um, for acute injuries. Uh, and also looking at long-term injuries, especially in basketball, where we're dealing a lot with tendinopathies, both patella and Achilles. And give us an example of using ultrasound on the road that changes your management. Well, sometimes when you're on the road, and sometimes in basketball we can be on the road for 10 days, so we haven't always got um, access to images or the people, the consultant radiologists that we want to view our, our images, which I think is a vital part of any type of imaging that you rely strongly on your consultant radiologist. So what we tend to do, because we have our own system, we can basically email the, system, the pictures to our own consultant radiologist rather than to have it to rely on a local consultant in a local city.
Bruce, the comments on that? <laughs> well, I think it's uh, fantastic. I mean, point-of-care imaging, point-of-care medicine is becoming a real hot topic, and this is an example of how we can really aid the athlete, the trainer, the coach, the team physician um, in making the correct diagnosis, which, as we know, is you know, it's, it's not always easy depending on, on um, the body parts you're examining, whether you know something is a tendinopathy versus a partial tear, if the high-grade partial tear could have significant impact on that athlete returning to play. Uh, return to play decision-making is uh, complicated, and, and um, it has um, fiscal implications for the team and, of course, uh, implications with regard to, you know, depending uh, if it's uh, a star player, uh, whether you're likely to uh, succeed or not to field the play. So uh, it's a great opportunity. Um, what we found at the Olympics was that uh, we were able to set up some local area networks and, and send not only static images, but also stream um, what's called DICOM images, which is basically a, a video, DICOM video, of the actual scan to the radiologist who could then view the uh, video and ask for perhaps further images if necessary. And uh, this really leverages the uh, one of the main benefits of ultrasound, which is its dynamic uh, capability. So uh, we found that to be um, a, a real help. Yeah, on that ultrasound topic, it's, a, it's an interesting one because it's, everyone's always talked about ultrasound being very user-dependent, which it is, and splitting up the person reading and the person taking the pictures. But I imagine, I, I haven't done that myself, but imagine if you get a relationship between a radiologist who's remote and a team uh, physician or physio who's on the road with the players, you could develop a, a, a way of understanding how to communicate with each other. So this is this plane and I want you to give an opinion on, on what we're seeing here and you could maybe even do that on the other end of the phone. Do, do, do you tend to do that, Dave, or do you tend to sort of do a screen and then uh, email that back and talk about it later or do you actually have a radiologist on the other end of the phone while you're, you've got the probe on somebody? No, we tend to uh, send it and then have a conversation uh, with both our team physician because our, our team physician doesn't always uh, travel with us and sometimes we have to rely on the uh, opposition's team physician. But we have uh, basically phone access probably 24 hours a day to our orthopedic surgeon, our consultant radiologist and our team physician. Yeah, we do something similar with the Australian cricket team with uh, not, not as much ultrasound on the road, which we'll get into about MRI where... If, if a cricket team's travelling in India, it's easy to get an MRI scan in India, but not easy to get a good read of an MRI. And, uh, and, and there's definitely a lot of emailing back and forth of MRI images more so than ultrasound, but I'm sure we'll get into ultrasound. Bruce, um, how's it been for radiologists you know, consulting electronically about patients now compared to the old days? Yeah, well, it's challenging. I think the points raised by John Daver are good ones. You know, ideally, you'd like to have the, the person interpreting the exam as much as possible, you know, at the site the images were obtained. But the bottom line is, and this court is, sort of goes in another, another related topic, Karim, the bottom line is that, you know, there aren't enough radiologists and MSK ultrasound technologists out there to, uh, to not only take care of all the patients we already look after, but, you know, to go to the field of play, whether it's a high-level varsity match or, a, you know, another elite amateur match or a professional uh, match. So that raises the point then of how is the increasing burden of these exams going to be managed in a quality-oriented way? And I think that's key. Radiologists, uh, we're interested in, in the modality being used, uh, you know, to, to best benefit the patient, uh, not necessarily, you know, in a, in a turf protective type of, of way at all. So, um, you know, I support the use of ultrasound by non-radiologists as long as some of the quality benchmarking is attained. 
And those things range from a defined curriculum to hands-on supervised training um, to uh, things like a method of accrediting somebody and, um, and then making sure that, just like everything else we do, that appropriate CME is obtained. So, so I think with those things in mind, I think everybody wins. The, the, the patient wins. The, the physicians win. The radiologists are, you know, content and, and, of course, available to consult should other modalities be needed or, indeed, a, another ultrasound exam required. That's a great issue, John. Your comments on quality control. Yeah, well, with ultrasound, the good thing is that the downside is not there. Obviously, um, with X-ray uh, or CT, if you take an image that's a bad image, you've just exposed the patient to unnecessary radiation. Whereas with the ultrasound, as long as someone's got the time to do it and they're not billing someone unnecessarily, you can play around with an ultrasound and, and it doesn't cost anyone anything except the time or... or perhaps a mistaken diagnosis, but, but it certainly means that if you've got one in a team setting, you can get a lot of practice in and uh, an appreciation of what's normal and abnormal for a player. And uh, it's also probably the, the modality that you can do daily follow-up uh, of an injury if you want to, because it's not as long as you've got someone there who can operate it, and it sounds like Dave may be able to comment on this, you obviously don't get as many muscle strains in basketball as the football codes, but I imagine you, if, you've got a, if you've got a machine with you on the road, you could uh, you could be looking at a hamstring and sort of seeing what it's like on a daily basis on the, on the diagnostic ultrasound, and that's not costing anyone any money or giving you anything other than extra information that you can help to to say whether that player's ready um, if, if you see the muscle appearance on the ultrasound uh, improving on a daily basis, whereas I don't think any team would be doing a, an MRI every two or three days on the same injury. I think that would be overkill at this stage, um, no matter what your budget was. Yeah, I agree. I mean, obviously, as a physio, you know, I'm not initially trained, and Phil O'Connor's group in Leeds, uh, when I was back in the UK, did some excellent courses that they run, I think, twice a year up in Leeds for... Uh, GPs, physios, osteopaths, etc., um, and even uh, consultant doctors, sports physicians, um, which is a one-week course on ultrasonography. I won't use it as a definitive diagnosis um, because I don't think I'm skilled enough to do that, but I would use it for looking at progression of something over time, looking at movement, functional movement, for instance, sciatic nerve movement, if we feel that uh, clinically, there's some restrictions and we can measure the movement of the nerve. We can also measure the, the, the size of hematomas uh, and see what effect we're having with those hematomas over time when we're trying to treat things like hamstrings, etc. More so in basketball, where we're, we're dealing with like chronic tendinopathy and just looking at echogenic changes and neovascularization and seeing what's happening over time, the size of the tendon. They're the sort of things that, as physios, are, are, that, as a team here, we're using it for. And do you feel you had adequate training to do this, Dave? Well, I think the more time that I spend with consultant radiologists, um, we have quite a good uh, uh, consultant radiologist at Hospital Special Surgery in New York, New York called Ronald Adler, and he's probably the best guy, uh, or one of the best ultrasonographers in, in New York. And whenever I can get the opportunity, I go and spend some time and watch him scan, and I learn lots and more just spending time with the doctors. Um, Unfortunately, we, because it's slightly different from football, when I was in football, the doctor would always lead, like uh, John, for instance, would always lead with the ultrasound. Um, but, you know, you just try and pick up as many uh, advances and, and ways that they're using it. And the more I think that you see pictures, the, the, the more you can understand the anatomy and you can understand, you know, what's right and what's wrong. What would be great would be something along the lines of some research to kind of give us some um, some benchmarks for return to play, you know, uh, 
there's been a little bit of that. I know David Connell has done some research on hamstrings using MRI to kind of determine the factors that cause American football players to be out for, for more than uh, uh, two weeks. Um, and it, that's the sort of thing I think would be terrific because, you know, as you say, you're following an injury, say, sonographically, and it would be great to know that, you know, once the hematoma reaches the size of one centimeter that, you know, 90% of athletes can return to their sport and function at a high level. Unfortunately, at the moment, you know, we don't have much of that research uh, published. So I, I think that would be a great thing for us to, uh, to move forward with. And Bruce, before we leave the quality control issues, from hearing those thoughts, what would be your advice you know, to listeners as where you think this is going in terms of accreditation and quality control? You touched on it before, but maybe a, a brief summary. Sure. Well, I, I'm not at all certain about other practitioners using ultrasound uh, as long as uh, they meet you know, high quality standards uh, you know, in order to get best outcomes. So I think what that would mean is uh, you have to really specify you know, what uh, the minimal education, training, and experience that uh, a practitioner needs and, and to verify that as has already been mentioned that there'd be recognition that you know the hands-on experience for ultrasound is critical that you you can't you know watch a dvd or, or that kind of thing go onto youtube or whatever and and learn how to do ultrasound you have to hold a probe and and uh, have hands-on training uh, i think there should be competency criteria so that one at, at, a, at a lower level for diagnosis and a second for intervention because there is a great utility of ultrasound in guiding uh, sonographic ejection. And then, you know, we need to come up with some competency, uh, you know, determinations. Uh, and other, uh, other groups, like the American College of Emergency Physicians, uh, have published guidelines and have very specific criteria that you have to meet in order to be deemed competent, which is, which is great. Um, uh, and that needs to be followed with, uh, again, requirements for for CPD. That's how we would do it in our, um, in our modalities and uh, imaging. And, and I, I think that uh, other uh, specialists like the American College of uh, Physicians uh, and, and cardiologists using uh, ECHO have uh, done so as well. And that gives me the chance to plug the December BJSM issue where the American Medical Society for Sports Medicine have published their curriculum that they've discussed. Bruce Forster, you have an editorial about the topics you just covered. And there's an editorial by the president of AMSSM as well, Fran O'Connor, with Kim Harmon discussing those issues. So that will give us, a, it's a good place to move on to injections and just procedural issues before we move to sideline and, and clinic um, stadium MRI. So procedural use of ultrasound in games. John Orchard, uh, you were involved in this quite a bit. So why don't you open on that, please? Yeah, I, I just reviewed a paper for the British Journal from the um, Aussie Rules guys uh, from St Kilda. We've just published a paper, or about to publish a paper in the next couple of weeks, uh, talking about the Magistay use of ultrasound. And one of their conclusions was that they've already found it more useful from the viewpoint of procedural ultrasound than diagnostic. So I thought that on, on match day, they haven't had too many occasions to date where they've changed their clinical management on the sidelines based on a diagnosis, but they already have found it very useful. Australian rules is a sport where there are a lot of uh, injections performed, both local anaesthetic for players to continue playing with the aid of painkillers and uh, cortisone injections post-game or, or plasma injections post-game. And they've really found ultrasound useful to be able to 
guide the injection into the place more easily. And, and in the paper, they describe uh, at least one occasion where they think that they found pathology where they didn't expect it a little bit deeper than where they expected and were able to get a block for a player to continue playing for an injury that was that, that they considered safe, that was a, a, a deep uh, bursitis, I think, uh, that uh, they picked up with an ultrasound. So, so they feel that the role on match day is going to be more procedurally orientated, uh, but um, may be more valid in sports where match day procedures get done more. I've, I've written a paper myself recently in the American Journal on use of local anaesthetic in rugby league. And rugby league is a sport where there are a lot of match day injections. And I think the sports where there's upper body tackling, these sports uh, tend to use local anaesthetic more because the upper body injuries are more amenable to use of local anaesthetic safely. Uh, um, a sport like football or soccer, um, uh, where most of the injuries are lower limb, uh, and, and most of them are overuse. There, there, there's probably more danger for more more parts of the body that uh, you'd think about injecting with local anaesthetic. So there's not the same culture of uh, doing a lot of match day injections when um, when you've got soft tissue injuries that are that are overuse orientated. So uh, this sort of technology may actually be more valid in American football, Australian rules, rugby league, rugby union if they consider it's legal. Although there's uh, um, match day uh, injections are, are, are on the borderline, I think, in terms of whether they're legal in that sport. But uh, but the, the procedural side of it, interestingly, is the um, side that that uh, this paper suggested uh, it was going to provide the most benefits. And that paper is in the December 2010. BJSM James is the first author on that. Dave Hancock, what's your experience in the US setting in your English Premier League before that with procedures and imaging at the sideline? Yeah, um, working from a, a private practice years ago, I, I saw a lot of uh, issues where especially GPs had been injecting uh, tendons, uh, specifically tendons, uh, with corticosteroid and been injecting them blind and used to see some horrendous ruptures and um, you know some tears that had been led um, from those injections. and. People who had never really had an issue, had an injury or had even capsulitis and went for an injection in the shoulder and, and they come to see you some six, seven weeks later and they've ruptured their long head of biceps. So my view is when the older sonography came in, into uh, vogue um, and the consultant radiologist got a lot more experience from them, that nowadays, especially in New York, we don't have anyone have an injection blind. Um, we send them up to our uh, consultant radiologist um, and have them injected under ultrasound guidance. And I would recommend that to anyone, whether they're an amateur uh, sportsman or you know, right through to professional level. And Bruce? Absolutely. I mean, I agree with everything that's been said. I mean, you have a choice of injecting blind or with ultrasound. Ultrasound is so uh, uh, you know, much a benefit. And um, you know, most injections are fairly superficial, so the, um, you know, the limited transmission of uh, ultrasound waves to deep structures is not really an issue. I'm not a clinician, of course, so I, you know, I, don't, I don't make those decisions of whether to inject, but given that it's the right thing to do and everyone agrees, the next best step is to do it in a way that you're sure you're injecting in the place you intend to. Um, PRP included, I mean, um, uh, interestingly enough, there was a, a recent uh, exhibit that I reviewed just the last week at the RSNA, the big radiology convention, which looked at, you know, where where uh, where the PRP ends up, and um, 
kind of interesting to see that when you in inject uh, structure, it, it does, uh, of course, as, uh, as you might imagine, not stay pooled right at the structure, but sort of uh, kind of extends beyond the structure and percolates, you know, uh, somewhat at a distance. So um, interesting to, to follow that and see what effectiveness the injection has depending on how much diffusion of the of the of the platelet-rich plasma occurs. Uh, but uh, I, I can't imagine injecting uh, substances now uh, without uh, sonographic guidance. Let's move to MRI. John, I'll let you open on this. Why don't you paint a picture for our listeners? Yeah, in, in Sydney, we've got a, a sporting precinct uh, close to the city where there is the city, Sydney Cricket Ground and the Sydney Football Stadium. Five sporting teams who are based uh, in this precinct. There's now also a private sports medicine centre there that's has installed an MRI scanner, so it's not uh, owned by any of the teams, but all of the teams have got the opportunity to use it. And uh, my two teams that I'm associated with, the, the Sydney Roosters, who are rugby league and New South Wales cricket, we're, we're regular users of the MRI scanner, both during the week and on match day, and it's been a, a, a massive convenience for us in terms of getting players easily to the scanner uh, at, a, at an opportune time. In um, cricket first-class matches, there's definitely great opportunity to be able to get scans during the match itself. Cricket's a very slow-moving sport, as uh, I'm sure anyone listening from uh, America would uh, um, appreciate. Uh, first-class game, there's plenty of time to get the player who's uh, not participating in the game over to the scanner. During a rugby league game, rugby league's pace at Similarly to soccer or American football, it's uh, less useful to get scans done during the games because the players are required to be, if they're still part of the game, they're required to be there because they might move back onto the field at any time. But we do a lot of match day imaging straight after the game. So when the game finishes, take the player off and take him straight over to the MRI scanner, get the diagnosis, particularly good for a Friday night game uh, or a game on a holiday where it may be two or three business days until the conventional MRI scanners open uh, for business again. So if you're, if you're um, getting a scan on the night, but you're always ahead no matter what. If you've, if you've got the scan and you've had it read by a good radiologist and you can give the exact diagnosis to the coach straight away, plan the week for the player, whether or not he might be playing next week, it's only an advantage to get that early on. So... That sort of technology is great, and from our point of view, what's even what's even greater about it is that we're only paying for each scan that we use. We'll go to Dave uh, first with your experience of accessing MRI pretty much at point of care in both uh, the UK and New York, Dave. Yeah, um, we we only have a squad of 15 players uh, on our roster, so we're you know. In relative terms, compared to the football, American football players, we're very small. Um, no NBA team that I know of has an MRI scanner on site, but um, a lot of the American football teams, as John said, and on a lot more of the college teams um, are affiliated to teaching hospitals or have um, research units within their colleges. Um, so they have full access to the American football teams or all the professional, or, sorry, all the college teams that um, associated with that college. For instance, Stanford have a, has an unbelievable um, radiology department and uh, sports medicine and, and research unit. 
um, with a lot of reputable physios and uh, other specialists from around the world going there to do research and PhDs. And I actually did some um, research into looking at costs for uh, an MRI. And um, basically, for a reconditioned MRI in the US, you can pick these up now for about half a million dollars. That's a 1.5 Tesla um, GE turnkey, uh, five years old, with shielding, rigging, and everything else. So when you take into account that we've got one of our players on $20 million a year, it's not a massive amount um, to be funding out for something like John says to actually develop a facility. And the cost of MRI in the US, which is obviously purely insurance-based, can run from $3,500 to $5,500 per scan. So it's an incredible amount of money that um, the insurance companies are paying. And, and I personally think it definitely is the way forward that big teams will, and I'm surprised that none of the premiership teams really have, have, have done that, is to actually open it up to the public, but to have it literally on the site of the training ground um, and have full access to it for your players and almost create your own radiology department within your club, because I think it can be very profitable. And Bruce Forster, with comments on that, and also the Canadian perspective, which has different funding, of course. Yes, Kieran, um, the... Um uh, the, the the real benefit of MRI is number, but of course it's so graphic, right? So you know, uh, team doctors, physios, uh, chiropractors, uh, you know, across the board, everybody can see the image and they instantly get it. Whereas ultrasound, uh, you know, one of its drawbacks uh, has a lot of advantages, but it's not as graphic as MRI. So the utility of having um, game day or near game day MRs is attractive uh, for at least that reason, if not many others. Um, the um, uh, the, the critical thing is to make sure you're getting a quality piece of equipment. Uh, you know, um, uh, there's a lot of MRI units out there, uh, some better than others. You want to scan a relatively high field. Uh, uh, you don't want to have, uh, you know, uh, too low a field strength, otherwise the whole program's in jeopardy. Um, the, um, uh, some of the newer systems are a great benefit in that they have a small footprint, require considerably less shielding, and actually have stronger gradient strength, which is kind of the the, the part that makes the um, the images uh, you know so graphic uh, is uh, is state of the art and in fact um, even better than some of the uh, larger units. So you can now put a, a uh, you know uh, one of these portable well, not portable but small uh, footprint MRI units um, in a in a small office uh, and not worry too much about spending a lot of money on the siting, including the shielding. Uh, so I think that really is uh, one of the uh, ways forward. These uh, units do not, however, uh, allow uh, scans of the brain or the spine. In some cases, uh, the uh, shoulder and hip are also not part of the, uh, the capabilities, but uh, for distal extremities, they provide uh, an excellent alternative at lower cost. Bruce, can I just ask you, the short ball magnets, are they becoming you know, a lot more portable and a lot more uh, smaller over the years? They're um, they're still a real beast to have to cite. You know they're very very heavy and you know the average price in Canadian dollars to cite a 1.5 T superconducting magnet would be about you know seven hundred thousand dollars. I mean it's just prohibitive, very very expensive. Um, so so you know uh, the, the 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 bore has increased uh, to over 70 centimeters. So there's a wider aperture for the patient. Uh, the bore is shorter. Uh, but they're still a long ways from being anything anything less than awkward in terms of, of finding space and citing them. And John, wearing your clinical hat um, as a sports physician, what about the evidence for using these technologies early on and having an impact on patient outcomes? You know, with the eventual 
potential demand for cost effectiveness. Why don't, you, why don't we touch on those things? We've been pretty operational so far, so why don't you talk about those things? Yeah, it's a, it's a good question, the, the cost effectiveness and, and hard to gauge. One bonus you've got, uh, it's worth touching on too in, in relation to, you know, Dave was sort of saying, why, why aren't they doing this in the premiership? And uh, you've got the irony where uh, in the US and Australia, you, you have uh, a more private medical system so that MRI is more developed itself, uh, but you actually have a, a socialist uh, sporting culture where you have salary caps and, and limits on what uh, teams can spend on players. Um, and you've got the exact reverse in the UK. You've got uh, a much more publicly orientated uh, medical system with, with less private enterprise, but you've got uh, an out-of-control free market uh, premiership football system where player player wages absolutely gobble up all of the uh, operational costs of a team and more. And and so you, you've got uh, football teams trying to live on a shoestring outside uh, their player wages because they're, they're, they're you know, by definition almost always spent more than they're, than they're generating. So as a result, in the, in the US and the Australian system where there's a salary cap and all of the teams have fairly even roster strength, Clubs are looking now for more of an edge off the field, so they're looking to say, well, how can we get better injury diagnosis because we're, we're, we're neck and neck with so many teams in terms of our player roster strength. We've got to try and work out a way off the field where if we can, if we can improve our sports medicine department by 5 or 10%, we can maybe uh, jump ahead you know, four or five places on, uh, in the league. It's certainly part of the Australian culture at the moment that uh, having a a high-end sports medicine department and funding extra technology does potentially have an edge on the field because the strength of the teams is so even that small things like this might be making a difference. Uh, players are a little bit, uh, a little bit uh, like sheep in some ways in that they'll they'll all want to be moving to a team that looks as though it's uh, it's run well, it, it, it's got good finances. Um, the better team, the better players are going there. We want to join this team, and and, and obviously having uh, top end sports medicine is part of that. It's probably not nearly as important as, as having a, a perceived uh, good head coach, for example, or, or having a, a superstar player as your playmaker, etc. But it's just one of those extra little things that, fortunately in Australia, we've got that culture that uh, if you have good sports medicine associated with your team, that that might make a difference and might uh, have players more likely to want to come and play for you. It is hard to justify the cost, and I don't know that, that we're there yet. But it's a lot easier when we're paying $300 for an MRI compared to $3,000. So there's obviously something... Uh, um, which is um, a little bit sick in the US and um, to a lesser extent the UK health system that there's that much price gouging on, on MRI scans um, that um, they become so unaffordable um, for, for someone to pay cash. But in, in Australia, because of that, because that cost level is so low, um, most people getting MRIs in Australia are paying cash and not getting rebated by the government or um, private health. They're just saying at $300, if I can just walk in on, on the day pay for the scan out of my own pocket and uh, get the scan done and not have to argue with an insurance company over whether it's justified or argue with the government over whether I fit certain criteria. I'm just going to go in and do that. And it's, it would be interesting to see whether someone in either the US or the, or the UK would start doing that soon. I, I imagine that, 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 that both those countries would be ripe for 
someone to open up a scanner and to massively undercut and say, look, forget insurance, forget what the government's going to pay for. You walk in here, you pay this amount, it's, it's uh, actually not that much money. We can still make a profit on, uh, on uh, doing scans at this, this price level and uh, you get rid of the uh, barrier of uh, worrying about justification for insurance, etc. And, and at a team level, you can afford to be doing uh, fairly regular scanning um, at that price point uh, compared to, say, if, you, if you've got to justify spending 3000 every time you want to have a look at something. Raise a bunch of issues there, John. Um, Dave Hancock, your thoughts on these issues? Yeah, I, I think John's right. I mean... I, from my years in football, um, I mean, roughly we would go through, I would think, around about 55. I think the lowest I ever did in one season was 35 MRIs in one season. And then the highest I ever saw um, in the whole of the Premiership was 135 MRI scans in one season. Um, and again, a lot of the teams now go through the FA Premier League Medical Care Scheme, which is like a pool and they basically look after your money and manage your money and you put an allocation in each year and if one team goes over their allocated budget then the rest of the teams within that pool would actually subsidise the other team um, which was something that was brought in by the FA about five or six years ago and I think every team or most of the teams are actually doing that because the private medical insurance companies um, basically start realising that they're... Uh, the amount that they were charging the clubs weren't covering for all the scans that they were paying for. And then that gave the clubs or gave the, the clubs as a joint uh, venture through the FA Premier League Medical Care Scheme to be able to go and uh, barter with uh, the various different medical um, companies or the private hospitals about MRI scans. I think when I was at Leeds, we, we got our price down to about £350, £400 for an MRI scan back in sort of 2000. And I think at Chelsea... Um, I think we we're playing around about 800, maybe a little bit more. I can't remember. I mean, um, Brian English would be dealing with that side of things. But that, we, we went through a number of MRI scans, or each team would go through a number of MRI scans. So you know, it can—it's obviously not going to be the same cost as buying a scanner. But um, if you know that you're regularly going to be using it that much, um, I do think that you can open up and do what John said and undercut everyone else as long as you've got a good team of, of uh, you know, a good consultant radiologist, first of all. And obviously, um, as uh, Bruce was saying, you know, having a really good uh, scanner, um, I think it can be um, plus-plus for the team and plus-plus for the organisation if they're willing to put the money in the, the building behind, uh, the, you know, from a club point of view. Well, you know, I think that this is a, a, a real good news story. I mean, muscle cell imaging is on fire. Uh, if you look at the uh, U.S. Medicare population data over a 10-year period from 1996 to 2005, the number of MSK MRI exams is up 354%, and MSK ultrasound up around 200%. Um, if you look at Olympic, uh, you know, uh, data such as we just have, there was a 45% increase in imaging studies performed at Torino, compared to Salt Lake City, and um, at our own Olympics, uh, we saw a further 55% increase in imaging studies over Torino uh, for a total of 880 exams, um, and second in number was MRI uh, after uh, regular radiographs. So uh, there's no question that, um, that uh, all those involved in, uh, in, in, in care of the, of the athlete are, um, are really re you know, relying more and more on, uh, on imaging 
there's other evidence, you know, there's in the U.S. there are some orthopedic surgeons who historically have, you know, uh, often tried to interpret their own studies who, uh, you know, some of them are very good, but but uh, what they're now doing is inviting radiologists uh, in some cases to to do in-house reporting of the studies generated by by their own um, by their own magnets. So uh, you know, it really is uh, it, it's a, a real change. Uh, I mean, all you have to do is open up the paper. Uh, I'd expect many times around the world, and you'll see headlines that say that you know some superstar athlete is awaiting the results of the MRI before you know further further planning, and uh, this helps these trainers and coaches and physicians who are under tremendous pressure to have more data at their fingertips um, uh, to be able to make these decisions, though I'd still argue that there's a great uh, need for, for more uh, research for uh, real, you know, endpoints in, in what we're looking for in these studies. So, so it's, it's, a, it's a very exciting time. I think it's, a, it's an excellent topic to uh, have on this podcast and to devote a, an issue of the BJSM too, because uh, it is increasingly part of the fabric of, uh, of sports medicine um, uh, imaging with these modalities. That's a nice summary, Bruce. And getting close to the end here, it's a good place to um, just see any last comments from uh, John or Dave um, before we, we wrap it up. Uh, John? Yeah, I, I'd like to wrap up with an analogy that uh, I think uh, most people could understand. Uh, my wife's pregnant at the moment, and uh, as part of the pregnancy, she's gone along for the, the two or three formal ultrasounds where we go to a top-end centre. Every, every measurement of the, of the fetus's uh, anatomy is, is done meticulously and, and it's a formalised report on the best possible machine. But in addition, um, at her obstetrician's uh, own office, he has a, uh, an ultrasound um, machine that's not as high quality as the ultrasound specialist, but on a, on a fortnightly basis, he can have a quick look at, uh, check that the heart's beating, check that the baby's head's up the right end, um, check that things haven't sort of uh, moved a lot since the last exam. And you've got a great combination there between the top-end imaging that, that's always been available that you're still going to use and you don't want to neglect, but also the, the ability for the obstetrician to, to use ultrasound in the office as an extension of the physical examination. That uh, much as you can be an experienced ultrasound, same whether the, the baby's head's up the right end, you're going to get that right more often with an ultrasound in your hand, no matter what um, level of uh, scanner it is, than just by physical examination. So um, uh, that combination of um, using whatever level you can afford um, imaging as a value add uh, in, in the in the um, the context of day-to-day uh, -day care, plus you still keep the use of um, the absolute top-end uh, imaging um, as you always have uh, when you really need it for the most important diagnosis. So I think that 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 uh, that's where the field's heading. Um, extra value add for imaging that you can get, um, which is which is highly convenient and you do more regularly, um, but uh, still using radiology in the traditional sense where you get top-end scans when you have to make the diagnosis most importantly. And Dave, your thoughts? We have a lot of physio readers and listeners of BJSM. Well, I agree with John. Um, I, I think we don't know enough, basically, about... Um, when you have an injury about you know what it actually looks like from an ultrasonography point of view over time um, and sometimes an MRI is the other thing we didn't really talk about today was the fact of MRI in too quick 
Um, you know, I'm a big believer that the, unless you're looking at acute trauma and you need to make some quick decisions like off the pitch as to whether or not someone needs to go for for uh, surgery or needs to be referred on, it's not really going to change what you do with them within the first 24, 48 hours unless you have some big event like the Olympics where you've got to get them fit within three or four days. So I very much like to wait a couple of days, let the inflammation settle down and then go for the MRI. I've been caught out in the past where um, we've signed players on medicals from having MRIs and the MRI was done literally that evening after the guy had done it on the pitch and nothing really showed up on the MRI and then we had to end up following it up, you know, seven, ten days later and there was a, a you know, an injury there that could have been... Um, picked up, you know, if they just basically waited two or three days and done the MRI. So I think that's the important point. I think the other important point I like to make is that I think it's fascinating, especially ultrasonography from physio perspective, the work done by uh, people like Paul Hodges on transversus abdominis activation from the University of Queensland, um, work done by Jill Cook um, on Achilles tendinopathy and progressions of tendinopathy. And ultrasonography is used by these physios to look to activation, look at what's actually happening um, from a dynamic point of view. And I think that that's something that we, um, with these new technologies, we can use and we can learn more from. But I think, you know, we're, we're still a few years off knowing exactly um, the healing response and being able to determine purely from an MR or an ultrasound whether or not something is fully recovered. And I, I think it's a great piece of a jigsaw. And I, I still go back to the point of just having really good practical diagnostic skills and using it when you need to use it um, and just knowing when the right time to use it. So I hope that helps uh, with regard to the physios that are listening anyway. We do want to just touch on that. Can MRI be too early, Bruce? Um, let's talk about timing of, of scans in relation to pathology. Right. Well, you know, it does take... Uh, uh, short time for edema, whether it's uh, intravascular edema in muscle injury or bone marrow edema in bone uh, contusion to become visible, but it's not very long. I mean, MRI is so supremely sensitive. I often tell our residents, you know, that, that MRI is really a sensitivity machine. It isn't always a specificity machine, but it, it sure can show you things that, uh, uh, you know, with a high degree of uh, confidence. So, um, uh, you know, uh, I think that really it's a matter of hours uh, before MRI can, you know, show you uh, the, uh, the pathology, whereas with other modalities you may never see it or it may take days. Um, so, uh, yeah, I, I think the, the advantage of having uh, uh, imaging facilities at or near the field of play, um, you know, is, is, is valuable because of that effect uh, with MRI. Um, so, uh, but I think again, we, sh we should probably, you know, we need to have to come to a better understanding of, of, of the, 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 you know, the, the progression and the uh, natural history of these, uh, these injuries as time goes on. Um, from my perspective, looking more broadly, uh, what the Olympics and my sports medicine practice uh, in imaging has allowed me to do is um, uh, have a really fantastic consultative relationship with um, the entire team uh, of physicians and caregivers, uh, which um, you know is, is not always uh, easy to do in the real world. I must say the Olympics was kind of you know pretty unreal, it was pretty idealistic, uh, but but I've certainly learned some lessons from that, and and the value of of, of you know uh, going over images with uh, with the individuals such as these is uh, really can't be overstated. Um, 
and so so that's a real real benefit for the athlete. So uh, yeah, it's it's going to be very interesting to see how we how we adapt. Uh, I don't mean to repeat myself, but I, I think again it's very very important that that the the holder of the probe and ultrasound, if you will, is uh, skilled and uh, accredited, and uh, and uh, you know we can we can use the information in the patient's best interest. And uh, I think that's going to be our challenge as uh, these units become cheaper. Uh, you know the handheld units will be probably less than $10,000, um, and uh, certainly the vendors are advertising them as uh, physical exam extenders, which makes sense, and the, uh, the advertisements have got uh, GP scanning them and using them for scanning, et cetera. So there's a potential very, very wide group of people that could use these units. And you know, I, I consider it really a responsibility of, of the radiology community um, to try to, to set some standards for that, since uh, we historically have had the most experience with this. And, you know, a lot of us uh, spend a lot of time training um, uh, our residents and, and fellows on how to best do this. So we're, I think, a, a useful resource uh, for um, for other uh, other services like uh, like sports medicine and physiotherapy. And uh, bearing in mind this uh, team play advantage, uh, I, I hope that we're able to provide uh, you know an important uh, link in in this type of uh, accreditation and training. Thanks, Bruce and John. You put a lot of work getting this together and organising this podcast, so you've got the last word. Yeah, I think uh, Dave's example just shows that uh, the, the number one take-home point with radiology has always got to be uh, you, you've, you've put the clinical and the uh, radiology together and you've got to interpret it as a, as a combined picture. And with our match day MRI, we've got the luxury of having a relationship with with the technician and we're doing it as an if you like and even using MRI as an extension of the physical exam so we're saying we think this player may have done this injury and we want you to look at it with the scanner and, and uh, rule in or rule out, out that injury and I, 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 with with that context I don't think we miss anything but the example Dave's just given of a player you might be signing who's had a match day MRI somewhere else and uh, all you've got is uh, someone's sent you the scans that are taken uh, and you don't know you know, what they were looking for when they did those scans, uh, that's when you can get errors made. So uh, it, radiology will not um, mean that um, clinical examination and clinical acumen uh, goes out of vogue. Uh, uh, the, the best results are always going to be when you've got a, a great clinical context and you back it up with appropriate imaging. So. Um, we find match day MRI great, but we've got that uh, we've got that ability to uh, sit and be chatting with the with the uh, radiographer about uh, what we're looking for, and, and that obviously increases the accuracy. Thanks, John. That's a good place to leave it for today. I know everyone's got to get back to work. Thanks to John Orchard working with rugby teams in Sydney and also Australian Rules. Bruce Forster, the head radiologist for the Olympics. It's great to have a US perspective with Dave Hancock from New York. And Dave, appreciate your insights from the New York Knicks. Thanks to each of you and thanks to the listeners. Lots more podcasts on the BJSM site, as you know. Thanks very much. <laughs>